welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us today. Now, I do have a little favor to ask of you, and that is that you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. By doing that, it helps other people find us, but more importantly, it motivates us to keep producing great content for you. So all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, select ratings and review, and write us a review, and we would be very appreciative. So with that done, on with today's episode. The world over, the salon industry is a collection of essentially small businesses. And in many cases, the owners of those businesses are often overwhelmed with issues around employment law, tax, health and safety updates, changing legislation, and a raft of other challenges, as well as all the other fun stuff that comes with being a small business owner. But luckily, in many countries, we're also supported by industry associations that are there to offer information, support, and guidance to help salon owners navigate their way through the maze, as well as offering solutions and a sense of community. Today's podcast is the second in a series of three episodes where we talk to the key representatives of associations in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Australia to get an overview of the hairdressing industry in each of their respective countries, the challenges they face, and the solutions that they have. My guest on today's podcast is Steve Sleeper, who is the Executive Director of the Professional Beauty Association, otherwise known as the PBA. And in today's podcast, we'll discuss the hairdressing industry in the American market. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Steve Sleeper. Hey, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here. Uh, excited to chat this morning. Well, I am too. It's, uh, it, it's great to be doing this sort of series of three different podcasts with, uh, you know, representatives of the biggest associations in, in each country. And I know you're going to have um, an, an awful lot to contribute. Uh, and I hope I've got your title right. You're the Executive Director of the Professional Beauty Association, which is otherwise known as the PBA in the United States. Is that correct? That's it. You got it. Okay. Rightio. So um, before we get started, I like to just have a little icebreaker question for you. Uh, You can choose A, B, or C. I've got three questions here for you. Uh, You just tell me which one you want to answer, A, B, or C, and then I'll tell you what the question is. All right. Got it. They're all harmless, okay? So what's your choice, A, Uh, B, or C? I'll go with the middle ground, right? B. Oh, that's an easy one. Where is the best piece of pizza you've ever had? Oh, New York City, hands down. Hands down. A particular place? Well, I have to qualify it. If it's New, if it's North America, it's 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 New York City. If it's Italy, okay, then it's a whole other discussion. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. All right. So look, before we uh, uh, get into the serious stuff, let's start off with an overview of you and your background. So if I can get you to sort of do the, you know, the two or three minute backstory, who is Steve Sleeper? And uh, how did you, you know, come to have this position in the US hairdressing industry? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think it's like a lot of people's paths to their current spot. It, uh, it wasn't necessarily by design. So I, I, I'm actually a, a financial a CPA. It's a certified public accountant by training, right? By, by degree, an accounting degree. Had the, a finance background, auditing background. And uh, when the association came out to Arizona, they were uh, looking for a finance manager. And so, uh, you know, I hadn't even thought about what the heck an association was at that point, really, right? They they're everywhere as so you come to see them, right? They're in every part of our lives. They're in every profession, every part of society almost, uh, but they don't tend to stand out. So, yeah, yeah, got got started that way. Loved the, uh, the, the association, the nonprofit angle, loved the industry and just sort of uh, found a great spot to be for the next, what was now 26 years later. So it's been an amazing journey. I, I, I think I've been the executive director. Someone asked me the other day, I'm like, my God, I had to, do some math to figure out what when I actually took on the role. And it was right around 2001, I think it was 2002. 
Right. Okay. So, so you- uh, yeah, it's been a great journey. It's been, it's been an awesome career. I'm, uh, I'm thankful and, and fortunate. Good. Okay. So what exactly, if you're talking to a, to a you know, somebody who doesn't understand the industry, um, what's the purpose of an organization like the PBA? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, that's a good question. Cause people always ask, well, what do you guys sell? You're the professional beauty. Like, no, we don't sell, we don't sell anything in the, in the industry. We support the industry, right? Nonprofits like, like PBA. And we have a, in the U S it's a special designation. It's called a 501 C six organization. It's just part of the tax code, which means we're, we're exempt from paying federal income taxes and we're organized purely to support an effort, right? So we're here to serve the professional beauty industry and everything that we do goes back into funneling and supporting and fueling growth and support for the industry. So, you know, there's no shareholders, there's no, no one's making, you know, money on these things It all goes back into support the membership and the industry and the initiatives that we, we take on that obviously many of them have no revenues attached to it. So, yeah. Uh, the stuff that we do in other parts of our, our association space help pay for those efforts. Obviously, membership dues is a part of that uh, as well. So it's yeah. kind of a unique place. Yeah. Well, that's actually something I want to ask you about because I'm, I'm aware of uh, how different your association is structured compared to in the UK and in the Australian market, as an example, in that you know, under the PBA, and tell me if there's more than what I'm about to mention, but I know under the PBA comes the uh, the NAHAs, which is the North American Hairstyling Awards, uh, which is part of the PBA. Whereas in, in uh, you know, the UK, Europe, Australia, the hairdressing awards are always affiliated with a trade magazine and a, a manufacturer, um, which is interesting that, that you basically own the North American Hairstyling Awards. Uh, and then you've also got the I. SSE, which is uh, a big um, trade fair, which I think that stands for, I actually Googled it, so I know what it stands for, International Salon Spa Expo, yeah? Um, yeah. And then you've got other digital events and stuff. So all of these things are actually producing revenue for the association. Is that basically how you finance the association? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's the majority of the revenue stream that we, we work with on an annual budget year. So, you know, the dues revenue is still an important part. Um, but but it's it's never enough, right? If we yeah. were only relying on that, we we would we would be a much a much smaller, more specific organization. You know, we're we do a lot of different things. So you know, the, yeah. the stuff that feels the most business like is is the trade shows because there's a lot of for profit companies that run trade shows across the the, the country and across the globe. Yeah, uh, but you know, they're all tied back to our purpose, right? So that they're, they're, they're attached to the same mission. So, you know, as long as things that we do align with the mission and support the industry and support the members, you know, we can do lots of different things. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's challenging at times though, Anthony, because obviously we're subject then to the same business cycles, right. That uh, the whole economy is roughly, you know, obviously COVID has been a tough, uh, you know, just thinking about PBA in particular, our, our members obviously have been hugely impacted, but it's affected the association as well too. Our, our ability to do programming and support has been impacted by our lack of ability to do events. It means that revenue streams have been impaired. And uh, so we've been, we've been juggling lots of balls like all of uh, uh, everyone across the globe, actually, actually, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and am I right in saying that you represent every area of the industry. So you represent the product manufacturers, distributors, salon owners, and licensed hairdressers. You you cover all bases. Yeah. Yeah, that that's true. That is absolutely true. And, and PBA is, uh, is you know, we've, we've been technically formed since about 2002, but we're the culmination of, of two different mergers. And uh, the first one back in the late 90s, which brought together three different trade associations that represented just one part of the industry. So it was a manufacturing group, a distributor group, and a salon owner group that came together to form PBA. Yeah. And then about uh, 10 years later, uh, we merged with the National Cosmetology Association, which was the individual licensed professional. So yeah, we've got three kind of core categories of our of the industry that we represent. We've got some affiliate members and we've got some school owners and, you know, publishers and, and researchers and, uh, you know, kind of associates that are also part of the membership, which are important, but yeah. our core membership represents those four parts uh, that yeah. I mentioned before. Okay. Well, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And I think it's one of the problems that the industry has, which is, 
everywhere. It's come to the forefront during this, you know, last 18 months, you know, of COVID, et cetera. Um, and, and that is that there's been a lack of representation often um, because the industry is so fragmented in right. terms of, um, you know, being represented by a particular, you know, one body. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to come to that later, actually, because I'll, I'll I'll go off track if I get into that at the moment, because I think it's a really big uh, and important question. But um, America is, you know, got a big population. It's a big country, but it's also got a big population. So. Um, and you know, fifty odd, um, you know, different states. So, so how do you, how do you structure the PBA? Is it a national body that looks after the whole country, or do you have sort of state representation? Because if there's one thing I've learned in America, is it says different rules and, and different laws in different states, which is a bit hard to get your head around sometimes because they almost feel like different countries. So, so yeah. is it is it a you're a national federation, or is there different sort of outposts in in uh, each state? Yeah, no, we're, we are a national trade association. So we have got members across all 50 states. We've actually had uh, quite a few members in Canada and, and even down into Mexico and South America. Okay. Um, obviously, the core membership is is U.S. based. Uh, mm. You know, no, we don't have individual state chapters or any sort of state infrastructure. Um, you know, we've got a pretty robust we call it an advocacy program. So when we get to public policy issues and legislative issues at the state level in, in particular, we've got core members that we we utilize, um, you know, to step in and help represent PBA on certain issues, whether it's a licensing issue or an ingredient issue, you name it. I think, you know, historically, a lot of professional societies or trade associations like PBA had state chapters and they had a kind of a, a federation kind of model at least for our industry, you know, it, it, it was there early on in the 50s and 60s with NCA, but it wasn't sustainable, right? I think the, there was a lot of challenges with trying to have, you know, uh, 50 states or even 40 or 30 states running state chapters and having some sense of a national organization. You can imagine, right, trying to keep a cohesive point of view on issues was challenging on an industry that's still incredibly diverse, as much as we've unified and created more of a, uh, an industry representative model, uh, it's still a, a huge challenge, right? Because as much as we think, all right, we've got four different parts of the industry under, under PBA's umbrella, uh, that, that's, that's, that's important, but it's, it's difficult to get consensus and unanimity even with, uh, amongst those groups. So it's an ongoing challenge, I think, we all recognize fragmentation sometimes as we're, we're our own worst enemy as an industry. Um, and we've yeah. made progress. I think that's the thing that keeps me hopeful is like, look, we're not where we were even 20 years ago. We're not where we were even 10 years ago. The, the, the progress has been significant. And I think people continue to realize that it's important to be more, more focused and have a better, you know, total voice for the industry than trying to come at it from a million different angles, um, which yeah. is pretty ineffective. Has, has COVID been a plus for you in that context in that when things are tough for people that they look for well who's doing something about this and they start looking to associations and and things whereas normally maybe they haven't bothered with them has has covid sort of driven people you know to your door as potential members yeah i mean they, i think that's the, the big irony entity is that it, it was but a, a huge uh, windfall for us in the terms of getting awareness in the industry, right? One of the things that always frustrated me the most was in a normal time frame, everyone's doing their thing. You know, there's not a lot of time and energy spent about figuring out, hey, what's PBA? Should I belong? You know, what, why is it important? What, what are the benefits of joining? How do I support my industry and my, my profession, right? It's, it's, it sort of would go every, over everyone's head. Yeah. And when the crisis hit, it became you know, readily apparent that people were looking for answers and solutions and help. And they they found us. We were mm. overwhelmed with the amount of uh, requests for support and help. And uh, we dropped everything we were doing at that point and started to pivot to the things that made the most sense. And one of the things I'm most proud of is we have a charitable part of our organization, too, that is really tied to the philanthropic side of our, our programming, which is a. Uh, mm. We have a cut it out program. It's called it's a domestic violence awareness program for salons to help spot signs of domestic violence and create referrals. We have a, an amazing uh, scholarship and grant program for continuing education. And then most importantly for this COVID era was we have a disaster relief fund, which was designed to help offset um, 
against natural disasters like hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. And we provide financial support for industry professionals to help help get through that tough transition period before they get themselves back on their feet. So yeah. we pivoted that fund to become the COVID-19 relief fund. And we we raised uh, and, and distributed over $1.6 million and it's still going. We're still getting some donations and we turned those around and sent them right back out the door with no admin fee off the top. Uh, we were overwhelmed with requests for aid and we did the best we could just to raise as much money. And in fact, our, our industry partners stepped up to the plate when they had budgets being really impacted and, and made some pretty sizable contributions so that we can get to that 1.6 million pretty fast. So, well, yeah, um, it's cre- it, it's created awareness. And I think that's my biggest thing would say it's brought PBA to the forefront, at least in people's minds of, hey, there is this organization called the Professional Beauty Association, and they are here to support my career and my industry. Maybe I should find out more about them. And even even after the the, the pandemic settles back down, that they're a resource to help me build my business or further my career or help support my industry that I love. So while we're talking about COVID and, and hopefully we are, you know, both in, in Europe and the U S on the, uh, you know, we're coming out of it. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, what's, what's the results? What are you seeing? You know, I, I always like talking to people like you because you have a, a good overview of what's really happening. And I know it's probably a little bit soon to have accurate numbers and stuff, but what are you seeing in terms of, you know, people not returning to the industry or people changing business models or the amount of salons that haven't reopened? Have you got any data on that? Yeah, it's it's a good question that I wish I had a more concrete answer in terms of hard data because we get asked the question all the time. But based on what we what we do see from some of the data sources, some of the just the feedback and the surveys and the information we're getting is that yeah, the, the, it, it has taken a pretty heavy toll on the salon and spa industry. Right, we've lost. We're estimating anywhere from ten to twenty percent, depending on the state and depending on the type of business uh, that's been affected. Um, you know, the, I think the silver lining is that it also proved how incredibly resilient and smart and tenacious our industry professionals can be in terms of figuring out a way to get through this thing. Um, you know, those who were able to access federal aid and state aid, they, they certainly took advantage of that, uh, which has been extremely helpful. It, it, you know, it varies so much by state because we had certain states that were, you know, mm. you know, lock, lockdown light is the way I describe it. And then you have the extremes on the both coasts where it was a much more strict prolonged lockdown and in particular California where we have a lot of members in California. So it is, it was a difficult thing to put your finger on one particular, um, you know, trend, but overall I'd say that, yeah, that salons are, are, are getting healthy again. They're busy. I know here in Arizona where we're based, my, my, my wife's a hairdresser and works in a employee-based salon They're they're slammed. Right. And so, it, it, it's good to see things reopening and people getting back up and running. Um, but I still think there's a lot to see what's going to sift out right over the next coming yeah. months. You know, some of the folks we know who stepped aside from the industry and had to take on other roles or, or just shut things down. It's too early to see whether they'll, they'll be back. Right. I do mm-hmm. think we've lost some for good. We probably mm-hmm. won't have many of them back just due to all kinds of circumstances. So, uh, but we saw some great business models, people really, really innovative with, you know, putting together gift baskets and product sales and curbside pickup and, you know, uh, outdoor, you know, services being performed when that was allowed, um, you know, folks, you know, selling gift cards and, and, and pre-selling, you know, appointments and pre-booking ahead of time, et cetera, you know, anything they could do to stay afloat and to keep their teams intact. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was inspiring to me. Yeah, good. Uh, how big is the industry in the U.S. Uh, in terms of number of salons? Is there a ballpark number you could you could put to that? Yeah, well, it, it, so it varies because the business model here in the U.S. is there's really kind of two big buckets. One is the traditional employment based salon where hey, I you know I work for an mm-hmm. owner and you know typically the owner is a, is a is behind the chair at least at some degree or used to be. So I'm employed by the organization and I could be three chairs or I could be 300 chairs. Mm. And then the, the emerging trend has been more of the independent contractor, right? The independent worker who's either 
renting a station from a hybrid salon. It might have some employees and maybe some chairs that are being leased out or the recent, more recent phenomena of uh, salon suites, right? So dedicated suite space, you know, set up in a way that you've got your own dedicated space and your own little mini salon within a, a larger environment of multiple salons. So when you say establishment, you say how many salons, if you qualify it, say employment-based salons, the more traditional model, you know, we've got probably less than uh, 200,000 across the, across the country. If you look at at the independence, then you say, hey, if every every sweet rental location, the individual space is one business, then you know we're we're approaching you know a million a million one a million two somewhere in that neighborhood. Right. So so there's over a million hairdressers. Yeah, yeah right. working licensed professionals, whether it's hair, skin, or nails, our our numbers are right around one point four million. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Give or take, and it's based on some of the government data, which is slow and. There's always a big lag in the data. So we'll see, like, we won't see the impact of what do those numbers look like, you know, uh, post COVID for probably another year or two when the, some of the census and BLS data comes out. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you, is, is there any one of those business models, um, you know, the employee based or the suite based or booth rental or whatever, has any one of them been hit harder? through COVID? I, I think the independent ones had, had potentially the harder go because they had sometimes less resources to fall back on. Yeah. Uh, you know, they could be more nimble and more flexible. So you could argue, hey, they were able to shift gears faster, but they typically didn't have access to some of the aid because obviously some of the early governmental aid was tied to employees, right? In the paycheck yeah. protection plan, it was our, the PPP side, we call it here in the US. It was a big federal aid program. It was tied to having employees. They adopted it to independent workers, gig economy stuff, but that didn't come through as fast as some folks would have liked, nor did they understand it, that they were eligible. Mm. So and I think some of the employment-based salons had a little bit more resources to fall back on. They may have had a bigger client base to work with. They could, they could shift schedules with the team, you know, and split up some of the client count if they needed to. And, uh, and retail sales were probably a better, which was one of the things that kept many salons alive was, you know, mm. beefing up retail sales and putting together, you know, ways for their clients to spend some dollars with them. Um, if you were an independent, that was harder, right? You didn't have access to some of that. So it, 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 it definitely put the hurt on everyone though, right? Across the board, it was it was agonizing to see sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes when uh, hairdressers visit the United States and they go and see a salon, they will typically go and see a big salon. And so they get the impression that, you know, like I, I'm sure you know, Visible Changes, for example, you know, sure. Visible Changes got 100, 120 people working some of their individual salons. And so sometimes people come away from America thinking all salons in America are big, you know. Um, what would you say the average, you know, size salon would be in the U.S.? Oh, less than 10 chairs, probably more like seven, seven chairs on average, right? And right. sometimes they're not full, right? And I think a lot of, a lot of salons are hybrid, right? It's like probably the case across the world, right? You have that sort of you know, top tier salons that are large and they've got a lot of employees and they're, you know, they've got themselves established really well. They've been at it for a long time. And then there's kind of everyone in the middle who's trying to either get to that point or is just starting out. And, you know, they're trying to figure out what their path looks like. They've got a smaller team. They're, they're trying to find their way, build their brand and, and, and you know, who are they going to stand for? What, what are they going to be? And yeah. they're renting out some chairs to help, you know, backfill some of the some of the rent, um, or they're all renting. Right? They're not enough any employees, just renting every single chair out. So, yeah, yeah, Main Street America. It doesn't look like what you see in New York City or Atlanta or Los Angeles or San Francisco, right? There's some amazing salons and, and you know, some amazing salons across the country, but that that's not indicative of what yeah, you see exa across, exactly across okay. the rest of the landscape. Yeah, no, definitely. All right. Um, was I was going to ask you about the training system that you have in the US, which is quite different to what there is in, you know, the UK and Europe in that you predominantly have a beauty school model, uh, which are privately owned, you know, they're for profit businesses and people go to beauty school and they come out the other end of that after, you know, 10 months or whatever it is. Um, whereas in Europe, the UK, Australia, it's more an apprenticeship based model. Um, I know you have some apprenticeships 
in the United States, don't you? But very few. There's, I know there's certain states. I was talking to Candy Shaw in Atlanta, and I know that she still does an apprenticeship model. Um, is that on the decline, or is it is it just something that's not promoted heavily? What's what's your no? I, I think it's on the increase. Now it's not a runaway train with the increase, but I think people are looking at alternative models um, to help bring you know future professionals to the floor, right? Yeah. The U.S., you're exactly right. It has a 50-state licensing scheme. So you have to have a, a vocational license issued by the state that you work in to perform whatever cosmetology services or, or scope of practice that you've, you've elected to, to pursue, right? And the schools basically train you to be able to qualify and meet the state standards to get your license and be prepared to go to work, right? I think we all know in the industry that like, it, it's just the beginning though, right? When you get to a mm-hmm. salon, you you, know, you you know how to be safe, you know how to, to do the basics, but you're, you're, you're not ready to hit the floor. And so you need that great training program that's gonna be done by the salon owner themselves or the program that they put together. And, and some states have, have introduced um, the, um, the, the apprenticeship side or have had it, but people haven't been utilizing it because it's just not widely used. But I think given the fact that, you know, we're seeing decreased enrollments into cosmetology schools, we're seeing, you know, other high paying, you know, careers that are being offered up as, as choices for the next generation that we've had to be more competitive. We really have had to try and figure out how do we get folks through the system quicker and how do we get them to work faster and sometimes with less cost, right? So that's also been a fun, right? Going to cosmetology school is not an inexpensive endeavor. Um, and obviously the federal government pays for some of those, those, those student loans and the funding. So it's a, it's more of a complicated scheme. I think folks are looking for alternatives, uh, which I think is a good thing, right? Cause it, it gets everyone sharpens their toe, right? Sharpens your pencil, you get on your toes Mm. And folks have looked at how to make it quicker, faster, easier, less complicated. States have been looking to try and streamline. They've been under pressure to sort of decrease the amount of regulation and the amount of red tape it takes to get through to mm. be a working professional. Um, so, yeah, it's it's I hope it's a trend that continues, Anthony, because I do think it's an effective way to get people prepared and trained for uh, a career in our industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What What do you see? Um, in terms of, you know, data again, what percentage of people go through beauty school and then work in the industry? Well, we're seeing that on average, we'd see about 100 to 130,000 enrollments per year. That was sort of the, the number that would, you know, fluctuate up and down. But that 100,000 enrollment number was pretty consistent, you know, and, yeah. and that was per per year. And, um you know, most of them make it through. There, there is a percentage that doesn't ever get the license and washes out before they even yeah. get to the floor. It's, I mean, it's, it's bigger than we all would have liked. But sure. the, the majority get to the floor. The challenge is most of them don't make it past three to five years, right? Right. That was the some of that's just yeah, yeah, got the wrong profession, thought it was going to work, didn't. Some of that's you know, where do they land first, right? The yeah. first job is so critical. Um, you know, if they end up in a good salon, it can be that's the ticket to a 30 year career, right? They end up in a dead end that, you know, they often just leave the industry completely. So I, I think that's one of the things we can do as an industry is be much better at helping those students who come through be realistic about what the career is like, what it's going to take to be successful. It's not overnight. And, you know, what it takes to, to learn the craft after you get out of cosmetology school, right? Building realistic expectations into that upfront to me uh, is important. And I do know a lot of the schools have done a much better job of preparing students from that standpoint of what it's going to take financially, what your path is really going to look like for the first few years. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's good, right? And I, I know that the, actually the, the, the John Paul Mitchell school systems have been, I think, a leader in that space to really be a better advocate for, hey, we want to build a more qualified workforce. We want to build people's expectations right from the beginning. We want to give them a more diverse point of view about the total industry and what it's all about versus just, you know, hey, let's get your license and get out the door. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I'd worked in education for a long time before I got involved with John Paul Mitchell Systems, but when I saw their schools, it was like, taking it to another level. I mean, I think their schools are amazing. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's good, right? Getting it to the yeah, next level. Definitely. 
yeah. important, right? I think we all talk about the industry that we want to elevate it. And, you know, that's yeah. kind of actually part of our mission statement. Yeah. Um, to elevate, you got to put some more work in. You got to be more disciplined. You got to spend more time on taking this the the career and the profession seriously. You've got to, you know, if you want to be treated more professional, you got to act, look, feel, walk to talk more, right? You've, you've got yeah. to be more buttoned up. So, yeah, definitely. Um, again, you know, because of your overview, I'm sure I'm going to get the most reliable answer to this question, uh, and it's about what are the percentages of employment-based salons versus, you know, booth renters, rented chair, whatever we want to call them, freelancers. Uh, and I know it varies a lot. So I know like in, in California, for example, it is predominantly independent contractors. And, and right. whereas if you go to something like New Jersey, it's probably predominantly um, employment-based salons. Um, in fact, I think I might be wrong. If suites are even allowed in New Jersey, then uh, I know in certain states they've been outlawed. So what would you say if you were talking about the US, you know, as a country, what percentage of people would be employed in a commission-based salon as employees versus being freelancer, you know, rented chair, suite owners, whatever. Yeah, it's it's around that fifteen percent mark, right? It varies a little bit. Uh, I'd say ten to between ten and twenty, but probably more on average is fifteen percent. That they're just, you know, they're numerically not as prevalent. Like like I said, when I was saying we were, you know, estimates of around two hundred thousand employment-based locations and. 1.1, 1.2 on the independent side, but they still represent the vast majority of the business, right? So in terms of dollars, in terms of the total you know, revenue they produce, in terms of services and retail sales, they're still the dominant part of the industry. They're still about 65% of the industry in terms of revenue and source. So you know, they may not be as numerically you know, high in terms of pure location, number of locations, yeah. but they're producers, right? They produce a lot of revenue. They're usually more stable businesses. They tend to be there longer. They've obviously, you know, the big ones have been very successful for lots of years. They have a, a lot of employees and they built a great brand and a lot of great clients, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. so I think so it's you, easy to- You did well, say 15, 15%, one time. Yeah, five. 15%. Wow. On, on okay. average, uh, yeah, yeah, fluctuating. Yeah. obviously, okay. we'll, we'll be interesting to see the post-COVID numbers, but uh, yeah, you know, it, but it's still the thing that I think people strive for as much as it's, it's you know, independent's a great path for people who are ready and, and who know what they're going to do and, uh, and their expectations are right to, to, to take on that, what we call a business of one. It really is yeah. like you're, you're yeah. running a business of one versus a business of many and some of the mm-hmm. same things you need to be great at. With the business of many, you have to be good at for a business of one too. This isn't mm-hmm. just a, just going to go off and rent a suite and expect things to happen, right? You got to be a smart business person still, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I do think folks still aspire though to run to have a salon with people that work in it and have a team and have a culture and have you know a collective sense of who you are as a as a salon brand, right? Uh, I think yeah. that's still aspirational for for folks, and you know the pendulum swings so. We'll see. Interesting. Yeah. So, so fifteen percent of them are employee-based businesses, but they account for sixty-five percent of the revenue. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because they're you know they're 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 more productive, right? I mean, I think the things with employment-based salons at times versus sometimes independence is. You know, you have a you have to have a structure. You know, there's no doubt you have to have a structure when you've got employees and you have a storefront and you've got you know your hours and and your days of the week. Like you've got to have structure and discipline, and you know you've mm. got you know more more clients coming through the door. You typically have some more visibility. You're just more public facing. Um, I think independents tend to be very focused on, hey, I got to promote myself and my business of one. I don't necessarily have some of that visibility or, or drive-by, walk-by kinds of traffic or presence in the community that a, an employment-based salon might have. And not saying that it's not possible. It's just, it's not the same kind of, you know. Sure. Focus. Yeah, yeah. So as, as someone who's had this great overview for 26 years, and so you've seen this business model evolving, um, and I, I agree with you. There are some people that this business unit of one is great for, you know, without a doubt. But being objective about it and you yeah. looking at the industry as a whole, what are your thoughts about the changing business model? Is it, is it good for the industry as a whole or, or, or not good? It's a tricky question. 
because if you just had to say, Steve, you personally, you know, I would tend to always lean into employment-based salons just because yeah. of the nature of what they are. And you, you're, you're building an asset, you're building something you could potentially sell on as a salon owner. You could potentially, uh, you know, take different paths as an owner versus always being behind the chair, et cetera, et cetera. So I would, I would tend to say that's a more stable, viable, long-term model. Um, but I think we're entering a new era with salon suites and with the choice being less controversial to do that. And, and, and mm-hmm. folks just acknowledging that that is a fact of our, our, our day-to-day world of gig economy workers and flexible work, that yeah. it is a more appealing option. And I think it's being more legitimized. I think salon suites and those dedicated environments sort of take it out of this messy, I kind of call it the messy middle of you're mm-hmm. kind of a no man's land sometimes when you've got an employment-based salon, but you're running some chairs and you're kind of not sure where that all fits that, you know, going to a dedicated independent suite says, all right, I got my own business. This is my space. I'm going to run it the way I want to run it. And if I'm, if I'm disciplined and, and, and smart about this, it can be really profitable and it can be a great career, right? With flexibility and choices and options. Um, But I've seen folks do it who just thought it was going to be an easy thing to slide out of maybe a more structured and disciplined salon, you know, employment-based environment to a suite and they haven't been successful, right? Because yeah. it does take the same kinds of discipline and structure you need for an employment base. You need to adopt for maybe a smaller operation of one. And uh, mm. so I think it's good though that folks are questioning that, Anthony, because it's causing people to look at it. You know, we've been an advocate for like, hey, it isn't about what business model you choose for the industry because there's no right or wrong answer on that one. Um, but what, whatever you do choose, know what you're going to do and be be successful with, and, and get the right tools and the right information and know your obligations and know your path. And that's where we can help people, right? That's what the association can do. We can help educate them. We can help bring those issues to the forefront so they know what they're, what they're about to embark into if they're making that choice or making that decision. And once they're there, we can help them be profitable and maintain their business so that it doesn't become you know, a disappointing choice and they're yeah. back to you know, hopefully not leaving the industry at all, but coming back in and finding a new a new place to be. Yeah. I often reflect on, you know, if there's all these individual business units of one, on one hand, we're saying that that's what's happening. There's a big trend in that direction. And then we're saying, on the other hand, that there's 100 to 120,000 hairdressers being pumped out of schools every year. Where are they getting experience? Where, where are they being taken on as an assistant, as a trainee? Because the amount of salons that are employee-based that would traditionally have taken them on and trained them sure. is is shrinking. So it's like, I wonder what the sort of long-term repercussion is for the industry. If these kids are coming out of beauty school, but they can't get a start anywhere, and they're obviously not equipped with the ability to go into a salon suite, and there's less and less salons. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's a huge dilemma, right? I think that is a real problem, right? Because we know, right? We all know if you've been in the industry for even a short amount of time that, you know, your real training begins when you get to that salon, right? You've, you've yeah. gotten the, the, the basics and the minimums down to get your license in the U.S. Once you, once you graduate from school, but your training really begins when you get to that salon and being an apprentice or being a protege or a trainee or whatever name you want to attach to it you know, involves a lot of stuff that, wow, you would never experience that if you were on your own. You know, obviously you wouldn't get the technical education, but you also wouldn't get some of the salon culture and the business side of it. You just wouldn't be exposed to it. So that is a real problem that I don't think anyone has solved or addressed. If you're going to be an independent, you know, most of them, you know, you you would have to go to work with someone else first, right? Very few people who could do it right out of school. Um, So it is, it is uh, an inherent you know, I think problem that uh, I don't think we have an answer for yet. Yeah. How do you think the, I mean, it never stops. It's not like we've got to suites and now this is going to stop. It's going to evolve into the next thing. What, what would your predictions be about what it might morph into, you know, in 10 years time? Where do you think we might be? Yeah, I, I think you're going to see, it's like, you know, it's like many things in life, right? The pendulum kind of swings back and forth across the spectrum of one extreme versus the other. And if mm. you know, if COVID has taught us anything, it has brought a lot of extremes. Um, I think folks that are shifting to the independent model, the ones that are successful, um, I can, I've already talked to folks who are like, they're, they're, they've been really successful. They want to start thinking about bringing on employees, right? So now they're going to go back the other way. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, they built their into business of one and they're ready for more. And that means they're going to be shifting back into being hopefully a, a really good employer, right? Because they've learned at least their, their fundamentals of how to run the business of one. So I, I think that'll be a trend. I don't, I, I think the ability to help business of one folks be successful, like you said, covering this gap of, of, of technical training and other information they need to be successful is, is part of the solution to help folks be, you know, in that space longer term. Um, but I think the pendulum will kind of come back the other way. And especially because COVID forced people out, right? They, they had to, some folks had to go off and work independently because they had no choice. The salon was shut down. Mm. Uh, you know, folks were making house calls and visits, you know, whether it was, you know, legal or illegal, it was a matter of survival. Um, so I think folks are going to be you know, sifting out and sorting through, like, what's, what's my next move in the industry? If I, if I'm going to stay in it, what's, what's it going to be? Yeah. With, uh, with your background pre PBA, as you said, you were a, a CPA, a certified, uh, public, uh, what was certified public account? Yeah. Public that? account. I think it's chartered account in the UK. Is Charter, the, yeah. Think, yeah. Yeah. So what I was going to say to you was this, is that I've often thought about this and I, I harp on about it to anyone who listen to tell the honest truth, because I see this business model that no one in hairdressing has ever done that I'm aware of. Um, and it is it exists in other industries. So in other words, it exists in the accountancy profession, it exists in the legal profession, it exists in architectural firms, and that is this partnership model where you know you get you, you get employed as a young you know accountant, a 20 year old as an accountant by this firm. and you know five years later when you're generating or bringing in you know a million dollars a year or whatever the number is, they give you the golden handcuff by making you a shareholder or a partner in the business. Now, I might have overly simplified the model, but I, I look at that in all sorts of other industries, you know, the medical profession, again, do it as well. Uh, and I think to myself, why don't the hairdressing industry do that more so that you can get bigger businesses when, and you're not so worried about your staff leaving all the time because everyone's got you know, a stake in the, in the, in the game, so to speak. Do you see any reason why that couldn't or isn't happening? No, I, I actually don't. And it's, it's, it's a great analogy. And it's, I think something that I've thought about before and lots of folks in the industry, I'm sure have thought the same thing at times. And it's partly because it is so fragmented. We don't even have some of those really large employers to start with. You just pick the accounting profession you know, traditionally there was the big 10 accounting firms, which became the big eight and the big six. So there, you know, there was a pretty large base of, of employment with just a handful of firms, you know, across the industry. Now there was lots of small independent, you know, accounting firms as well. Of course there were, but you know, the, the, those big groups were, were dominant and, and they were there. The awareness was high. If you were getting your accounting degree and you're getting your CPA license, you knew about those big firms and that they, very well could be your path, right? We don't have that equivalent in the, especially in the US, right? We've got some large, you know, more chain salon operators and they they operate a lot of doors, but it's still a very small percentage of the total salon base. So Mm. if you said, hey, you know, how do we create that sort of employer versus beauty school graduate sort of synergy, it, it, it becomes really problematic because you don't have scale to start with out of the gate. You don't have, can't pinpoint, you know, half a dozen really large firms that employ, you know, 100,000 employees or two, you know, 200,000 employees across the country. So I think you're already starting from a, 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 a yeah. you're behind, I'm not, right? Yeah, I'm not thinking of them as being that big. You know, I'm thinking of a, yeah. of, a, of a salon with, I don't know, 20, 30 chairs. And, yeah. you know, rather than Lee lose you, my best stylist, yeah. I make you a partner in the business. And, yeah, I think that's the more that, that's the more practical path, right? You know, so you don't yeah. need to scale if you've just got the model of folks saying, hey, when you join my salon, you know, you're going to get, you know, whether it's an employee stock ownership plan, if you're incorporated, yeah. or whether it's a partnership, right? You bring them on as a junior partner and you create equity, you create ownership, right? Yeah. So that they feel like they've got skin in the game for some longevity. And I do think it drives the value of the business that too, right? I think mm-hmm. that is one of the things people tend to overlook. You spend a career building a salon and if you don't build a good brand and you don't build uh, a solid establishment, you, you don't have any you know, real value left when it's time to exit the industry, when it's time yeah. to sell or retire and move on. Um, 
you may not have anything but just the value of the books, the client books, right? So I yeah. think it's a great example of how we could you know, think about the business differently. Make people mm. an owner, bring them on, bring them on early. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. When you're talking about before, and you mentioned, you know, across America, that is not representative of, of what you get everywhere. Um, when we were talking about sizes of salon, I just want to ask you about technology. Is is the uptake in salons as a generalization, um, just simple things like, you know, point of sale, computer system, online booking. Um, what, what do you see as the uptake being that, uh, you know, across as a broad, you know, uh, overview of the industry? Would you say it's, it's a high uptake? I mean, are 50% of salons doing online booking, 10%, 80%? Yeah. What would you think? Yeah. What would you I guess? Mean, this, one, this, this one I'm probably guessing at, but I, I have to say it's, it's got to be more than 50%. I, I think, you know, especially with the generations of folks that are, that are coming into the industry now, right? It's an automatic expectation that I'm going to be using some sort of app-based technology or cloud-based technology to, to, to either run my independent salon or when I'm going to work for a larger operator, you know, that they've got something in place already. You know, it's shifted from, you know, local installs and, you know, big investments in hardware and, and software to obviously a much more quicker, flexible faster way to deliver um, the software providers and the tech providers in the industry have really evolved their game rapidly. Um, some yeah. of them coming from outside the industry to provide solutions. And so I, I think the speed at which that stuff gets brought in and brought online and, and, and at which salons adapt is just continues to accelerate. It's almost not that it's easy, but I think it's some of those hard lifts to provide those solutions are really in the background at this point. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, just sort of switching back a little bit towards the COVID thing, because I think that's had an impact on this. You mentioned before, I think you re referred to them as home visits. Um, and I know in the US that that's illegal uh, in a lot of states. I don't know if it's illegal everywhere. And, and it's a huge problem, home hairdressing. You know, they they get called various things, most of them derogatory yes. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, by the industry. Uh, home hairdressing in, in Australia and in the UK, because there's a perception, and it's not always true, that, um, you know, that the standard of work's not there, the professionalism isn't there, and they're not paying tax, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, through COVID, as you said, a lot of it's been about survival. Um, I know of a lot of hairdressers in the US who have been doing home visits. And I know of now salons that as we come out of COVID, that they're actually putting that on their books, so to speak. They're putting that on their menu and saying that you can get your hair cut in the salon or we can send someone out to do it. And they're coming from us. We're literally a booking agency. Um, you know, we will charge you. We will make sure that the person who turns up has got all the insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see that as being something that will, that, that's an inevitability because some people won't want to return back to salons? Yeah, I, I think so. I think a certain percentage. I, I don't think it's going to be overwhelming, Anthony, because I think a lot of folks enjoy the salon experience. But I think there's a certain clientele that, you know what, it's a it's an ease factor. It's, it's a, you know, if I can afford it, especially, right, I've got the right setup at home. I'd much rather have the service come to me on my own terms and my own time than, you know, having to try and squeeze an appointment in. And, mm. you know, especially if you've got a crazy, crazy schedule. Uh, you know, I think states are we're forced to acknowledge that, look, we're going to have to make some, you know, some, I wouldn't call them exceptions anymore, but some changes to our rules and regulations to allow some of this. The biggest concern is the health and safety factor, right? Because the U.S. is very much based, the state licensing scheme is very much based on the health and safety of protecting the consumer. And if you can't inspect a location and if you can't come in and make sure you know, quote unquote, on a surprise inspection that things are where they should be, you know, you can't do that at home. So yeah. it does change the, the the function of, well, how do you protect the health and safety of the consumer then when you, you can't go in and see what's happening in the space and make sure things are sanitized and clean and they're following proper protocols. So it, it it's going to present some challenges, but I think we've all been, you know, forced to face the reality of, we just cannot be that rigid. We're going to have to find ways that create some level of accessibility on those on those services uh, and, and be more flexible. Yeah. Do now, you have to? Do you have to be licensed in every state to open a salon? Yes, you do. Because that's yeah. in the UK, you don't. 
you know, yeah. you're not a hairdresser. You could go and open up a salon tomorrow. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No. So the owner doesn't have to be. So the establishment has a license, first and yeah. foremost. So the establishment gets a license, then there that's inspected and on the on the state rules. And then the individual practitioner obviously has to be licensed. But if you're an owner and you're not behind the chair, you don't have you don't have to have a license. No. I could start a salon today and you know hire great professionals and get my yeah. establishment license. I don't have to have a cosmetology license. Yeah. Well, you you can work behind the chair here without a license. Yeah. Um, and in Australia, I'll stand corrected, uh, but I was told on the interview that I just did with with Sandy, who runs the AHC in Australia, that in some states there you do, in some states you don't. You know. So it, it's uh, and interestingly here, there's a real push towards making it licensed, but yeah. there's been a real push for a very long time and uh, yeah. and nothing ever seems to happen. So, okay. Um, with we, we sort of opened up with this, talking about the PBA and the size of it and the things that, you know, come under the remit of the PBA. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why, you know, you exist is so that as an industry, you have good representation at a government level. In other words, you know, government go to the PBA. They know they're talking to the man who's got the right information and can give a good overview of the industry in that country. Um, so what I'm asking you is, does the PBA have good representation at government level? Bearing in mind, you're a big country and you have independent state governments as well. And they do in Australia too, but there they've only got like seven states, I think. Um, I hope I didn't get that wrong. I'll be shot if I did. <laughs> Um, Yeah, yeah. But you've got like 50 states and I know you've got state governors and I know you've got state boards and all that sort of stuff. So so do you have, you know, the ability to have impact at at government level and get changes through? I, I would say yes. But the caveat being that we can always do more, right? I think some of the things we do on the, we call it our policy side or government affairs side, we have, we have a small team of dedicated employees that stuff is a function of how much resources do you have, right? If you had more resources to put against it, you could allocate more budget, hire more people. You could just do more. It's purely a function of, of, of that. I, what, how we overcome it is we're very choiceful about the issues we'll engage on because you just can't, you can't engage on everything. Um, mm-hmm. And we've got a great advocacy network built with our members. So like we, we don't have a 50 state chapter system, but we've got strong advocates in every state who can connect with their legislators. Many of them have personal relationships with some of these policymakers. You know, many of them are clients, obviously. Yeah. Um, so we're able to activate those networks pretty fast and pretty quickly. And it, when, it, when it's an issue they care about, they're, 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 this, this industry is the, the most effective industry I've ever seen in terms of being an advocate for an issue that they're passionate about, right? We, we, we know how passionate we mm. can be as professional licensed beauty professionals. So that's super effective, but we could certainly backstop that with more dedicated staff support, lobbyists, you know, hired lobbyists in, in key states. We have a few, but we could use more. So it mm. is a function of, uh, that's where I really got my bandwagon to get people to join, right? Because this stuff is important and it's behind the scenes and you don't always see it. Um, but if we don't have the resources to commit to issues, you know, we're always then at risk of, hey, a bad policy being decided that's uh, not good for the industry that we couldn't, you know, have enough influence on. And now we're stuck with it or we're stuck trying to unwind it. Um, so it is important for people to be connected to their, their professional society, you know, and, and join and take a even a passive stake, like for me, it's like realistic expectation. Not every member is going to be super active or super engaged. Um, but if you're just a member, that is the biggest thing, the biggest gift you could give the industry. Just join and, and you know, pay your dues, stay plugged in at least to what's happening so you can see it when something's important to you, you know, that then you can react and get more engaged. Um, yeah. But if you're not connected, how do we activate you? How do we, how do we, Get an industry to have a more cohesive point of view when people are are not connected to one uh, one one organization at least with a common vision. Uh, yeah, that's that's how you get things done. You get people mobilized yeah. and you get them connected. Definitely, definitely. Okay, what what does um, organizations like the PBA or the PBA specifically? Uh, what do they do to try and elevate the industry as a as a career choice? What, what are yeah, some of well, the I mean, yeah, ask? I mean, a couple, I mean, the stuff that's not sexy and fun is yeah. making sure the license is protected, making sure that there is a, 
an education, you know, plan and scheme in place to make sure people can be successful. But that's kind of behind the scenes. I think the things we do with like our, our North American Hairstyling Awards and how we talk about the craft to the consumers and the general public about being a great career choice, a great path to have an, a, a, you know, an amazing, you know, industry with lots of different paths. So it isn't just always behind the chair, right? You, you know, as well as I do that it's just the doorway to many different things, whether you're going to end up working as an educator, whether you're going to end up, you know, launching your own brand or product company, whether you're going to move into ownership, whether you're going to, you know, be a marketer or a product developer. There's so many different, you know, places to go with the industry and it touches so many people's lives. Um, our North American Hairstyling Awards sort of, you know, you look at the best in class, you celebrate, you know, the amazing artistry and, you know, artistic ability that people just get blown away when they see some of that stuff. So I, I think it's about, you know, putting the industry in a positive light, you know, producing great careers and producing great viable businesses yeah. um, that help offset some of the bad stereotypes that our, our, our industry has inherited over the years. Yeah. as a, And I know this will vary from state to state. Uh, but as a generalization, what are employee benefits in the US? So in terms of like holiday pay, vacation, sick pay, um, you know, health benefits? I mean, what, what sort of things does a, does a hairdresser, you know, get from day one? Yeah, well, at, you know, and, and it, obviously you've got federal laws and state laws and they do <laughs> they do work in tandem. Some Some take priority over the others, but, you know, there's obviously from a federal wage and hour standpoint, there's minimum wage requirements and overtime pay requirements. States then can go above and beyond that. And many do. Uh, California in particular has a lot of extra requirements for compensation. Unemployment insurance, there's there are what we call our social security system, right? So there's there's social security taxes being paid in by both the employee and the and the employer. And then we saw uh, during COVID, obviously, extra benefits being added to that to help to help supplement. Um, you know, a lot of salons do have some um, paid vacation and sick time. Some states require certain numbers of hours be paid um, versus others. Um, you know, retirement plans that are that are outside the Social Security system, they're unfortunately few and far between, right? I think. The federal government did just pass some new legislation allowing small businesses to come together to combine some of their resources to create what we would call 401k or a pension plan access, which is going to be a good thing for small employers. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, yeah, you're out of the gate. You start off with some great, you know, tools and benefits. And, you know, the, the, the bigger the salon, usually the richer the benefits they, that they can offer. Um, versus if, you know, if you're independent, you're, you've, you're, you're on your own for all that stuff. Um, yeah. Which can be a great thing too, right? It depends on everyone's personal preference. What's important to them? Flexibility and the ability to build their own business or, Hey, I don't want to deal with any of that. I just want to be a great hairdresser and I want to be compensated and make a good wage and have a great career. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, listen, I know we need to start wrapping up, but I just want to ask you, what do you see as the best thing? about the salon industry in the United States? Oh, I, I think hands down, it's, it's about how we help people feel about themselves, right? You can look at this industry from a very vain point of view, from an outsider's point of view, you could say, oh, it's just a beauty industry. It's just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of stuff that's superficial and doesn't really last and has no staying power. And, you know, yes, you could see it from that point of view. Um, but the reality is, is that we help people feel good about themselves. We take people who might have a, you know, a down and out day, or, you know, we've obviously heard some of the stories, people that have, you know, have been so depressed, they've even thought about, you know, harming themselves. And, and then they go to a salon and someone just turns their point of view around. And that, that may be an extreme example. Mm. But even on those little things every day, you know, you come in and it's your space to be comfortable, just to be taken care of, to be pampered, and you walk out feeling like a million bucks. And, and that's yeah. transformational. Not, not many that industries is. can say they can do that. No, you're dead right. Okay. Well, listen, we need to start wrapping up. But uh, before we do, have you got any final message that you'd like to leave hairdressers and salon owners everywhere with sort of related to associations and the importance of them? Yeah, I, I think it, my single message would be just to join, to join and pay attention, be plugged into what your career and your industry is doing we either behind the scenes that you just don't see or to, or it allows you to pay more attention to, right? We kind of glide along our path sometimes and 
you know, we know we're part of the industry, but do you really have a sense of what the industry is doing? And that's where you can get it by joining your association, right? And start paying attention to the issues that are affecting your career or your business or your livelihood. Um, that's the first step. And then from there, it goes however you want it to go. Um, but it's important because there's strength in numbers. We can only do more when we have more people connected. Perfect. Okay. Uh, where can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? Is it uh, probeauty.org? Yeah, probeauty.org is the website. We've got a great social presence on, on Instagram. Looking at our TikTok presence right now, we have an okay. amazing team of marketers who are figuring that out. So um, Okay, good. And I know I'll, I'll put those links in the show notes because I know your Instagram is at probeauty. A-S-S-O-C, short for association, I'm assuming. Okay. So um, I'll put those links on the website, growmysalonbusiness.com and the show notes for today's podcast. Uh, If you listen to this podcast with Steve Sleeper and you've enjoyed it, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, share it to Instagram stories, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review. So to wrap up, Steve, thank you so much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It's been really informative and great to have a chat to you. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you for the invite, and it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success. 